Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and we have a special episode as usual, but this time (laughs) we have three people on the show and have never had this before. We're all in the same room using the same microphone. It's going to be interesting. You guys are familiar with them. Say hello, Christina and Kira. Hello. Hello. It's so much fun. We, We are all nurses that work together and we... I was Christina's preceptor. Christina was Kira's preceptor. This is a, this is just a really f- going to be a fun episode. It's a family event. It is. <laughs> it really is. Thank you for having us, Tina. Yeah, I'm. Thank you for coming. This I is so mean, much fun. It's a good thing though that our listeners can't see us right now because we're literally sitting on a couch. Yeah, all three of us together. Yeah, <laughs> with a dog <laughs> in our laps. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. So we are also going to start doing something a little differently with the the podcast this week. Rather than having the news section at the beginning, we're going to have our little newsreel episodes on the website. So we're going to have, after we record our regular Good Nurse, Bad Nurse episode with our true crime story and our hero story, uh, we will record a little separate section and um, have that on the website for you guys to listen to if you want to go. And, and it won't necessarily be just news. It's it's going to just be like whatever topics we want to talk about. In fact, I think today after the show, it'll be sort of an after the show kind of thing. Um, we're going to talk about family members. So <laughs> you guys go and look for that if you know to be interesting. <laughs> so for our our bad nurse story this week, we have and they're usually, you know, they're obviously tragic stories. These are true crime stories and they're always tragic, but I feel like there's always something we can learn from them. This is the story of um, a husband and wife, a couple. The husband was a doctor, Dr. Frank. He went by Buddy McCutcheon Jr. He was 64 and was he was married to a nurse, and that's our nurse that we're going to be talking about. But Dr. McCutcheon was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was a practicing cosmetic surgeon for over 32 years. He attended medical school at the University of Arkansas, graduated in 1978. He loved music and was a talented musician. He played the banjo, the guitar, and other instruments. And he was also a Civil War and U.S. history buff. So, I mean, he sounded like a really interesting person, kind of well-rounded. Not only is he smart enough to go to medical school and be a doctor and kind of the science part of it, but he also sounded like he was kind of artsy, too. He sounds like the grandpa next door. Mm -hmm. You just see him sitting on his front porch playing the banjo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) So he was married, like I said, to Brenda. He had his own practice. Um, a cosmetic, cosmetic surgery of Asheville that Brenda worked at, even though she was a nurse, she actually helped out with the financial side of the business. So she was probably working more in the capacity of like a office manager kind of person, I guess, just sort of running um, the books and the accounting part. She gave up her own career as an emergency room nurse to help her husband And they kind of lived all over the place, as you have to do, I guess, when you're kind of getting yourself established as a young doctor, you know? Sure. I mean, although I don't know if this gives too much away for what is happening next, but I take, I mean, just reading that story initially, I kind of took that as a red flag. Mm -hmm. I worked for a young couple in, when I was in college, he was a doctor and she was not a nurse, but she was part of his um, office staff and she essentially helped him open his own business and 
I mean, they made they were they are still in business actually and very successful um, in one city where they started off. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born and raised in that city, and then uh, went to medical school medical school somewhere else. But they moved back and opened their own practice. A practice is something that's really hard to move. So I would have taken that as a as a red flag from the very mm, beginning. The fact that they moved around so much. Right, because yeah. you establish your patients and those patients help you in turn. If you're, you know, a very good doctor, they help by um, spreading word of, through word of mouth your practice and your expertise. So especially cosmetic surgery, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's not something that I would want someone doing to me that I didn't know was successful on someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. You want them to kind of have a reputation in the community. You want to want to be able to kind of see other people that maybe right their, their work and and they're established and tr- a trusted mm-hmm. name. Yeah, I I that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So she was in charge of taxes and payroll there at the office, and ended up the Department of Revenue referred their tax issues to the criminal department. So Ooh. yeah, that's. Never good. If you get the IRS <laughs> looking at you, uh, it's just not a, not going to be a good thing. Legal documents showed that the state was looking into the McCutcheons for possibly keeping empl- the employees' payroll withholdings instead of paying them to the state as, as taxes. So they're like, here's your this this employee worked forty hours, you know, at thirty dollars an hour. So here's what your check should be, but I'm going to hold back whatever they say they want withheld from their, you know, when they fill out the form. Right, for tax purposes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they take that money and they're supposed to be diverting that money over to the IRS. And the IRS, I guess, years later is like, um, dude, what's up? You haven't sent us any money. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I can't even imagine somebody being so bold as to do that. That's just crazy. Right. I mean, it, it, okay. When I was reading the story, I just thought to myself, this does not make sense. Anybody who knows anything about how taxes work is going to realize very quickly. Well, we would think they would realize that this is not something that you can keep hidden no matter how often you move or where you move. Right. I don't, don't, anyway. They will find you. It doesn't matter where you are. (laughs) So under North Carolina law, that, you know, using payroll withholdings like that is considered embezzlement, which I would think it would be any state law. It would be considered embezzlement. In July of 2016, though, they were served a court order. Um, and so they they were in hot water. There's no doubt about it. They were in some big trouble. And it was his practice. She works there as basically the office manager and handles all the finances. So both of them were in way over their heads. I mean, it's just, it's not going to be good. So having said that, in the early morning hours of July 16th, 2016, this was just a few days after receiving the court order, Brenda says she woke up to her dog barking and she also heard another sound, but she wasn't sure what it was. She said that she thought it might be a heavy picture frame that had fallen from a wall in the house. So she went downstairs, went through each room, and then went into the TV room where her husband apparently sleeps because she doesn't like to sleep with the TV on. So he sleeps in the TV room so he can watch TV. But when she got in there, she said she knew something was wrong when she smelled gunpowder. 
And so she called 911 and reported that she just found her husband and that he had been shot. And in the 911 call, you can hear her tell the dispatcher that the kitchen door had been left unlocked. Hmm. So when the police got there a few minutes later, they found Dr. McCutcheon dead of a gunshot wound to the back of his head. And see, that's the part that I found suspicious too, Mm -hmm. Tina, because as a nurse, my first instinct would not have been to check the doors and windows Mm -hmm. to see what was locked or unlocked. I would have started CPR, Mm -hmm. especially on someone like my husband. I mean, again, though, I guess maybe if you're in a state of shock, that might not be your first instinct if it's somebody that you know. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I think my last instinct would be to start inspecting the house to see what doors were left open or if it, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it did say that. So she went through the house and through every room. Maybe she saw that the door was unlocked and open Mm -hmm. before she got to the TV room. I would have been really creeped out at that, at that moment. Right. (laughs) If I had seen that even before I found him, you know, I would have been wondering what, you know, what happened here, but yeah, either way, it's, it's a little suspicious, you know. Right. And also, a gunshot sounds nothing like a picture frame falling. Well, yes. <laughs> but a really heavy one. <laughs> <laughs> you know how they just randomly fall off walls. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and what's so weird is like a picture frame, like of all of the things that you would think. A sound of a struggle. Mm-hmm. A table being knocked over, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Someone yelling. Right, but that you would actually think it was a picture frame, and not, and it wouldn't you would it wouldn't occur to you that it would be anything else, you know, even more sinister than that. It was like a picture frame. I don't know. This just seems very random mm-hmm. to me. So he was murdered with one of his own, one of their own guns that they kept in the kitchen. They kept it in the kitchen in a drawer, but I'm it sorry. wasn't. I mean, I've never heard of keeping a kitchen uh, a, a kitchen gun. No, <laughs> I've, I mean, I've heard of it, but it's like if you do that, you don't share with somebody. Like if you're trying to make it look like someone else mm-hmm. found that kitchen gun, it's that's <laughs> not something you <laughs> you'd have it hanging under the little hooks, like under the cabinet, like you have your coffee cups. Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> all your little guns hanging there. It's just. A, that's the crazy. I've never heard of, but I mean, I guess. Kiki, would you like to share with us about uh, this kitchen gun story? <laughs> well, the Florida man <laughs> keeps a gun in every room. Oh, so I well, guess in case you're there and there's an intruder in any room, you have something to protect yourself. I, I, I guess that does make sense. Mm-hmm. I guess what I again just reading the story initially, there are so many loose holes and mm-hmm. untied ends, so to speak. But, yeah. but the fact that someone took something out of the kitchen, I mean, if they did have a kitchen gun, like Kira was saying, it stands to reason that they would also have a TV room gun. If that's the room that you sleep in. <laughs> if that the, has to be a shotgun. Uh, if, there's, if there's a room where you sleep in, typically that's, okay, my husband doesn't keep a gun in our bedroom. Um, the bedroom but, gun. <laughs> gun. But his father, who was in law enforcement for years, does. My father-in-law Ooh. has a gun in his bedroom. So that I, I mean, you kept the gun in your bed. No, <laughs> I found your shot. Oh, <laughs> oh, I found it, Christina. You can't lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
listeners think that we're all absolutely insane <laughs> and we just fulfill the Southern stereotype. Because Christina is, Christina's from Texas. I'm from Tennessee and Kira's from Florida. We're all just redneck gun tone <laughs> nurses. Exactly. Okay, to be honest, when I lived by myself, I did have a shotgun underneath my bed. Oh, of course you did. Now, here's the thing. Anybody who knows anything about guns, which I will be the first to just say I don't know anything about guns. It was a gun that was my father's when he was like quail hunting. And this sounds bad. As a little boy, I mean, he learned how to shoot when he was about 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. He and his father, my grandfather, would go quail hunting together. After my grandmother died, we were cleaning out her house and we, we like, uh, were cleaning out her, well, it wasn't her gun closet, but her husband's, you know, gun closet, which is a safe, locked, secure place where you keep guns for those, <laughs> those of you who don't know, <laughs> hunting guns in particular is not something that you keep around your house for self-protection because bird shot is not going, it's going to hurt somebody kind of like a bee sting would. It's mm-hmm. not going to do any per- sort of permanent damage. In the short term, if that if that makes sense. And Christina is if uh, she's gonna shoot somebody. <laughs> she wants some permanent damage. <laughs> oh my goodness. No. Okay. The whole point of that was that I thought at the time that I might like to get my um what is that called? I don't even know. My concealed oh, carry yeah. license. Oh, yeah. Because I was at the time living by myself. Mm. And someone suggested that I learn first how to do some sort of like hunting, like work with kind of, oh, I guess a little bit of an easier gun. I am i don't know anything about guns, even to this day. So I probably am digging myself a hole here. I, I truth, truthfully don't know what would be easier to learn off of or mm-hmm. whatever. But in any case, it was a gun that was free and it wasn't loaded or anything like that. So actually, I don't have any anything to load it with <laughs> any sort of gunpowder or anything i don't know how to i don't know anything about it i don't know how to turn it off like on anything i mean okay it's not that simple you have to load your gun and prime it and all those things but that being said i don't know how to do any of that did you so just say turn it off <laughs> yes i don't know how to turn this thing on <laughs> so it's basically useless in my hands and if anything and i'm just going to put a warning out here for other people mm-hmm. it is more dangerous to not know anything about guns and have one in your home than to have one in it and know something about using them mm-hmm. i don't know if that made sense but anyways that's that's another reason why i don't have anything to load it in the house at mm-hmm. all i mean there's no, we don't have any ammunition. Well, I see what you mean. Do you like, know what I mean? What's the purpose of having it if you if I don't, don't know. know how to use it safely? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So reason why I kept it under my bed <laughs> was um, because when I was living by myself at the time, I um, had an incident happen where someone knocked on my door late at night. They didn't tell me who they were. My dog, who slept with me in my room at the time, was growling which was something that he's never done before. It just was a very bizarre situation and it scared me to death. So um, that being said, I, and this sounds totally redneck. I'm almost scared to admit this. Oh, no. Someone's going to, someone's going to comment and be like, well, that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but I would thought to myself, well, this gun is heavy enough that I could like hit someone over the head with it and knock him out. <laughs> because I, was, I didn't know what else to do. Aww. You know, I didn't, I was like, what am I, throw a shoe at the person? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what am I going to do? Anyways, thankfully nothing happened. I called the police. They came. They didn't find anybody. 
but they, my, the neighborhood I was living at the time was actually not a good neighborhood. So they patrolled it and kept a close eye on, on my house for me. Anyways, I'm very grateful to our law enforcement for that. But, um, that, because I was so afraid to live by myself something I don't recommend for the timid which I guess I am one of those people that's but, I would not want to live all by I myself. wanted was you to admit that you had a bedroom gun <laughs> <laughs> okay but the thing is I don't even have we don't have in our bedroom anymore my husband and I we I mean, he's like, that's not going to do anything to anybody. And so, anyways, it's it's underneath. <laughs> I'm not even going to say where it is, actually. But um, but it's to to be perfectly honest, it's not in our bedroom, yeah. not at all. No. It's in the kitchen. It's <laughs> no, it's not. Where all good guns should be. Exactly. Anyways, okay. Sorry for that long sea story. <laughs> so this poor man was murdered in the TV room yes. with the kitchen gun. With this, his, sounds, this sounds yeah. like a game of Clue. With it, yes, it does. <laughs> yes. So the thing is, it was normally in the in the drawer, but it wasn't in the drawer after um, he was shot. It was actually found thrown in a bush outside. So hmm. they know from forensics that this was definitely the gun that was used to, to kill him. But it was... Someone took it outside and threw it into like some ivy that would, was growing around this house, you know, overgrowth kind of thing. So the back door was unlocked, just like Brenda said had happened, and it was open. And there were two gates in their backyard. They were both open. And pe- people kind of thought that it seemed a little too convenient of a story that someone would break in and then know where to find the gun. Like, it just it just seemed this is kind of suspicious. Who why would someone break into their house, not bring a weapon with them, rummage through the drawers in the kitchen, find a gun, and then go and shoot him, then leave, not take anything of value, nothing. They t- they took absolutely nothing, and then throw the bu- the gun into the bushes <laughs> on the way out. That's just that didn't make any sense. But um, they also thought that it was strange that Brenda mentioned that the kitchen door had been left unlocked in her nine one one call. It just seemed like why make a point in in the 911 call with the opera like with the dispatcher you're talking about your husband how, having just found him you're distraught he's dead where's the person you know are you not afraid that there's some there's someone in the house they could still be in the house could they not she just heard a sound right so we are assuming this just happened and and she's just saying that the, the kitchen door was unlocked. It's just, I guess they sort of felt like that's, why would you bring that up? You right. Know? I mean, I don't know what their layout <coughs> of their house was, but it, it seems from the nature of the report that it's unlikely that you had to go through the kitchen to get to that TV room. Mm-hmm. It does seem odd. Yeah, it definitely, it, just, it's, it seems a little suspicious. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you sort of put everything together, you know, and it paints a picture. So if we back up to the day before, on July the 15th, just the day before all this happened, Brenda and her husband supposedly had a huge fight all about the finances. You know, this was just a few days ago. They had gotten the notice about the court order. order. They were under a lot of pressure. Brenda wanted to talk about it, and he was not having any of it. Um, So she was worried that he was going to leave, I guess. And, And it was just, this is all kind of the rumor, but pretty much understood that this had gone on. But the prosecution basically said that Brenda was an angry wife 
that she was just full of resentment for years toward him because they did move all over the place, you know, and she had to give up her career in order to work for his practice. And then they get into this huge financial mess. And they said that she was wanting to basically, with him out of the way, pin everything on him because if he's not there, then she can say, I had nothing to do with this. He, you know, was the one that spent the money before I had the opportunity to send it or, or I don't know, Hmm. but that's, that was their theory was that that was what she was wanting to do. Um, The defense argued that anything relevant to the Department of Revenue, uh, the Department of Revenue investigation. Oh, so let me back up a second. There was also reports that Brenda shredded documents um, after the murder that anything that that pertained to what she was doing and like her um, involvement Hmm. in their finances, she was shredding. So then the defense said, well, it really doesn't make sense that she would do that because any copies of any kind of financial records are going to be on file, you know, with the state or, or with the bank or whatever institution it is. So it wouldn't even make sense for her to shred the documents. She's not getting rid of every copy that exists. Sure. So, and my thing is, um, you know, whoever, you know, however this happened or whoever did it, if, if she in fact did shoot her husband and then go outside and throw that handgun into the bushes and into, or into the Ivy to try to hide it from police, then claim that somebody else did it. I just feel like the whole setup of this whole thing doesn't, point to somebody that was thinking very clearly. No. So I'm not sure that that person would have necessarily had the forethought to think, oh yeah, they probably keep copies of the financial documents at the institution, <laughs> you know. But Brenda also sold her house the very same month that her husband died. She got an apartment in Tennessee near her sister's. And there was it also kind of came out that Betty over the years had some affairs with some nurses that I, I guess worked at his practice. So, and I'm sure the defense probably, you know, used that to, and, and I, both sides could probably use that, you know, right. really, if the defense could say, well, all she had to do was leave him, you know, he had this whole secret life going on, it was all him. And then the prosecution could say she was just, she was mad at him for having an affair and, 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 and whatever. So they also said that he had recently made several withdrawals from his retirement savings that totaled about $300,000. So, I mean, that's a lot of money Yeah, to just take out of retirement. And whether she knew about it, I I don't know. Her doing the financial, you know, documents, I kind of would, it'd be probably hard for her not to know that he was doing that. But like, why would he be taking that much money out of there unless he was planning on leaving, you know? Right. And like setting up a, separate a life yeah Mm -hmm. that he could go to so she did go to trial in february of 2020 and she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison but she still claims that she's innocent she's she that's her story and she's sticking to it that someone broke in or didn't break in the kitchen door was left open they just walked in and got the kitchen gun and Mm. killed him and then left so okay if we flip it on the other side then i mean you know that is her story and she's sticking to it so if it's true i mean who else would want to murder him? Right. I mean, that just makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe you could argue like a disgruntled 
Well, I wouldn't even be an employee. Maybe someone he was having an affair with, I guess. I mean, that's the thing. The, in, in investigating it, they really couldn't find anyone that didn't really like him. He apparently was a really, um, at least on the outside, likable man, very likable person. All of his patients apparently loved him. His the people that worked for him. I there really wasn't any indication in any of these articles. And I saw I saw a lot of articles and watched a lot of like little news reports and. And they even interviewed her, or I'm sorry, his brother. And what was really sad is the brother, and he was clearly just just really distraught, and this was after the trial and everything, mm-hmm. is that he said, you know, they were married for 30 years. And our memories of her, the Brenda that we knew, she was a wonderful person. She was a wonderful wife. Mm-hmm. They, they said, you know, we don't even understand how this happened. Wow. Yeah. So clearly there was probably a lot going on behind closed doors that no one really did know about. To the world, they put forth a perfect front, but Mm -hmm. I mean. I think that some people are really good at, you know, like uh, holding everything in, like keep, and it's very important to them to, that the outside world not know their, their, their dark secrets their stuff, you know, like they want to present a certain image, image mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're not going to. And I mean, obviously you shouldn't do that with any, with just anybody. You know, it's just telling all of your dirt or whatever. Like, I don't like to go, I'm not going to go on Facebook and tell all my, <laughs> my stuff. But I mean, you would think like your brother, you would think close friends, someone would know if you were having, if you were struggling, but these right. people seem like the kind of people, like everything is tight. Yeah. They don't. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is not really relevant to this story. Maybe it is. But I think that nursing is actually a lot like that, that we're trained to really repress our feelings, distance ourselves, um, because we, at the end of the day, we have to go back to work. You know, if Mm -hmm. if one of our patients dies, if something happens, we can be upset about it, of course, but we have to to finish that shift. Um, And so I think that we are taught to kind of compartmentalize, compartmentalize, Mm -hmm. exactly. Our feelings, even our... um, Maybe how we feel about coworkers or management, administration, all those things. There's certainly a time and place to address that professionally. But if you don't, you can just end up carrying this kind of resentment and burden. Thankfully, I feel like that we're, as a whole, nurses are trying to change that culture. You know, we're trying to um, prevent bullying from happening in our, on our units. We're trying to preserve our young instead of eating them. We're trying to help each other even after hours reach out. And, um, I, I'm, I've had team leaders and other nurses text me after a hard shift asking if I was okay. Um, but I, I know that's not the case everywhere. And I think it's something we should be aware of because yeah. we're very strong to, to be a nurse. I think you have to be a strong person, mm-hmm. but, it's something that you can only carry to a certain point. Very well said, Christina. That's true. We kind of have to have a balance, don't we? Mm-hmm. Well, that's our bad nurse story for this week. And um, <laughs> we wanted to do something a little special this week for the good nurse story. Since the three of us are kind of here together, we were going to just kind of each tell a little nursing story of, an, of another nurse that we like or love or 
whatever, just kind of, or the, that we think is funny. I have my funny story that you guys probably will remember that I love telling it. So I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> so Christina, you want to go first? Okay. Yes, <laughs> I do. But only because I'm super excited about my good nurse story. So my good nurse story is actually about a nursing student who has yet to take her boards, but I know she's going to ace them. And her name is Elizabeth. She graduated from the same nursing school that I did, but I've actually known her ever since she was a little girl. We're we're not actually that far apart in age. Maybe like, oh, well, sounds kind of far apart when I say it, but about eight or nine years or so. But I've known her since pretty much she was about three or four. Anyways, I'm so proud of her because not only did she graduate with her bachelor's of science in nursing from a very vigorous program, I know because I went through it, but immediately After finishing completing her courses, she flew to New York City to work at a field hospital there and worked with a team for several weeks on the front lines serving the people of New York. And I, she's, I mean, she's just an inspiration to me really, because that was certainly a hard decision to make. And yes, it was dangerous, but it was something that she really felt called to do. And I, I guess I was just so happy and proud, not just because of her as a person, because of what it said for us as a profession, Mm -hmm. Um, someone who hasn't even worked in a field, but knows that this is something they were meant to do, can go ahead and serve and have that opportunity and nurses on the front lines, supporting her, helping her, teaching her. They even held a um, graduation for her because she didn't get to walk at her graduation, of course, because of of the um, community guidelines that we have in place. I was, it was just a very proud moment for me, for our profession. I think that they were able to welcome her and help her succeed in that role and that she herself was willing to go and do something that not everyone had the opportunity to do. I think a lot of us felt that we had to stay where we were, even though maybe we, I for one did consider going to New York because it was, I just felt so strongly about it, but I also felt strongly to stay because I was worried about my community and mm-hmm. what might happen, you know, if we had shortages here. Anyways, it, I realized not everyone can go serve on the front lines, but a big thank you to those who do. Well, kudos to Elizabeth and also to the nurses that were there that welcomed her in. They were being good nurses and yes. helping her to feel comfortable in her new role. That's exactly that's what it's all about. I love that. It's a great story. What about you, Kira? <laughs> Who's your good nurse? (laughs) My good nurse, I'm going to have to talk about my mom a little bit. So she has had some health struggles of her own. I won't go into details. She probably wouldn't care, but (laughs) um, she's had like over 20 surgeries since she's been four. And she says that she's always just kind of knew that she was going to be a nurse. She felt very called to it. So anyway, she went to nursing school. She started off as an LPN and then became an RN and she's always worked in med surge. And the weirdest thing is that she loves it. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's very rare that you meet people that like will stay in med surge for so long because it's so hard and it's easy to get burnt out in an environment like that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's been a nurse, like, I don't know. I, I have to ask her how many years specifically, but probably like close to 30 years now. And so she's been really like my inspiration to become a nurse. And I feel like she kind of warped my mind in a way because whenever I would like be getting tucked in, she like was basically a single mom. And so 
her like venting about her day, she would like tell me my bedtime story would be like med surge <laughs> stories. So <laughs> instead of like healthy, like wholesome things to fill the child's mind, like my mind was filled with like crazy stories hmm. about her shift. And like my favorite one was I would call it the Spider-Man story. And, and she just told me about like this patient that like she walked in. She was really good at telling stories and like being funny and kind of having that weird sense of humor and she was like i walked in he was like spider-man over the trash can just peeing in it and as like a a really young kid i just like cracked up i loved it so much and and then there's like this other story i remember about her saying like an artery busted and now like i think back to it and i'm like it was probably a fistula or something but like she just told me she's like I had to hold pressure and so like I was literally like five years old like I knew what <laughs> arteries were arteries and veins. And, like, so yeah she's definitely been my inspiration to become a nurse that's awesome I love that that's so cool what I really love about your mom is that you, she raised you and gave a positive spin even if she was even I'm sure she had moments you know where she was upset or whatever or stressed but somehow it came across to you that it was a good profession to go into and you know I, I've said this before when I was first uh, when I was brand new I was so stressed out and I was very negative when I wasn't at work I would just like complain about you know this or that or how hard it is or how and I was doing that one time in front of someone who was thinking about going to nursing school and she changed her mind. And then later, I didn't think much of it, honestly, at that time. I was like, good, yeah, go on. You don't want to do this. And then, <laughs> I know, I was so stressed out. And so, get going. <laughs> get on out of here. <laughs> but then I, um, I mean, it wasn't long after that, really, just a few months. And I realized how much I loved it. And I felt felt so bad for how negative I had been and how I had really steered her away from it. And I thought, I don't want to ever do that again. I was, and it was really, that was a pivotal moment for me that I just kind of changed my, I tried to change my, the way I talked about nursing, the way I talked about my job, because I don't, I want to focus on the positive things that you, we want to change the things we can change. And then we want to try to focus on the positive and not be giving people the impression that it's not a good career because it really is, you know? Oh, absolutely. So I will just tell the story that I love so much. And you guys probably heard it before. I'm sorry. I apologize if you have, but I love it so much. So my preceptor uh, at the very first job that I had is the funniest person in the world. She's hilarious. And she had been a nurse for 20 years. And so in order to make me feel more comfortable about being new and being nervous and worried about making mistakes, she said, I will tell you, when I was a brand new nursing student, she said I was, uh, it was our first clinical day. We got to the floor. I walked up to the charge nurse because the charge nurse gave us each a task that we needed to do. She handed me the thermometer and it was this little thermometer that had the like little coiled cord and attached to the, the, the probe. And she said, here, go take everyone's temperature. And so she said, I went and took everyone's temperature and then I brought the thermometer back and I handed it to her. And she said, oh, did you find the probe covers? <laughs> and she said, I just kind of froze for a second. And then I just said, yes. <laughs> and she's like, I can't believe I went and took every patient's temperature on the floor without a probe cover and didn't even like, she just went and took all their, I don't think she even cleaned it, which is, <laughs> I just think that's the funniest thing ever. 
And anytime I do something just crazy or like something where I'm just like, what was I thinking? I can't believe I just did that. I always think back to that story that she told me because she is such a good nurse. Like I, I'm so impressed with how smart she is. What a just great heart she has, positive attitude, you know, just, and so it always makes, like, I think back to that because it makes me feel better when I do something <laughs> where I'm just like, oh, what am I doing? I'm getting, you know, this is not good, but we all make mistakes. And so I love to tell that story as often as I can because I know how it's helped me. And I want other people to have that in their pocket if they ever need it, you know, when they make a mistake. So <laughs> so I guess that's our episode for this week. Thank you guys for coming. And thank you, Tuna. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you for having us. Anytime. And Dukers. And Dukie's here too. You guys didn't get to hear Duke. He's taking a nap. Just cure his dog. <laughs> Will you guys please go look us up on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse or Facebook at GNBN Podcast. Go to our website at www.goodnursebadnurse.com. You can send us an email. Just get in touch. We want to hear your stories, your hometown stories, whatever you got. We would love to hear from you. And we also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs>